you have to be able to adapt to the, the situation you're in. You know, sometimes you need to be that supportive listening ear and you go up and put your arm around somebody and, and say, hey, I'm here for you. I, I know you're struggling right now. Let's just go off and talk. Sometimes you got to may, maybe be out of character and come in and just drop the bombshell. I had to do that a couple of times as a midshipman. I was not a yeller and screamer, but there were a couple of times where I knew I had to get the attention of the people that I was responsible for. So I came in and then very uncharacteristically yelled at them and I got their attention. And then we had a conversation. I did that as a JO one time where I had to get the attention of my detachment because they were getting a little bit complacent. So along with the chief, we came in in a very dramatic fashion and we got everybody's attention. So I think if you're going to be an effective leader. You have to understand that particular situations are going to require you to respond in a different way. So you can't just do the same thing day in and day out. Welcome visionaries, creators, innovators, entrepreneurs, leaders, and growth seekers of all types to the Passion Struck Podcast. Hi, I'm John Miles, a peak performance coach, multi-industry CEO, Navy veteran, and entrepreneur on a mission to make passion go viral for millions worldwide. And each week I do so by sharing with you an inspirational message in interviewing high achievers from all walks of life to unlock their secrets and lessons to becoming passion struck. The purpose of our show is to serve you, the listener, by giving you tips, tasks, and activities you can use to achieve peak performance and pursue a passion-driven life you have always wanted to have. Now, let's become passion struck. Welcome to the Passion Struck Podcast in this special episode that we have today. And I wanted to thank all of you for taking the time to listen or watch the show. We know you've got millions of other choices where you could be spending your time and podcasts that you could be tuning into. If you truly love today's episode, please consider giving the show a five-star rating and joining the other 1,000 plus five-star ratings we have for the show. It means so much for getting our goal of passion to go viral worldwide. Now, let me get on with this episode. I'm going to start with two quotes from former NASA chief astronaut, Peggy Whitson. In the first, she said, I think the biggest advice that I could give people is to actually try and live beyond your dreams by pushing yourself, challenging yourself to do things a little bit outside of your comfort zone. And her second quote, I know the first female astronauts selected were an inspiration to me. And so maybe I will be a role model. That second quote means so much as a setup to today's episode because we actually have one of those first female astronauts who preceded Peggy. Today's guest is retired Navy captain and NASA astronaut, Wendy Lawrence. Wendy is a retired United States Navy captain, former helicopter pilot, an engineer, and former NASA astronaut. Lawrence graduated from the US Naval Academy and became a distinguished flight school graduate. She has more than 1,500 hours of flight time in six different types of helicopters and has made more than 800 shipboard landings. She was the first female graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy to fly in space and she has also visited the Russian space station MIR. She was a mission specialist on STS-67, STS-86, STS-91, and STS-114 
the first space shuttle flight after the shuttle Columbia disaster. In 2019, she became the Naval Academy's first female to be given the Distinguished Graduate Award, following in the footsteps of her father, Vice Admiral William Lawrence, who won the award in 2000. And Wendy also has a master's degree from MIT. Such an amazing guest today, and we talk about what drove her to go to the Naval Academy and then pursue that dream of going to space, the skill sets that future astronauts will need, and what she thinks are the most important traits for any astronaut to have, the value of all the extensive training that astronauts go through, and how her development from the Naval Academy to going to flight school to then getting her graduate degree at MIT prepared her for being the astronaut that she became. We talk in depth about why so few today are taking that chance to live the dream and her reasons around it, why so many people live outside of their comfort zone. She discusses in depth the sensation that she went through during her first launch and what she thinks the future of space will hold, both for the astronaut program and for the commercial program. Lastly, we also talk about current astronaut Kayla Barron's upcoming mission and what to expect from that as well. I had such a great time interviewing Wendy, who I've known for over 30 years. Now, let's become passion struck. I am so excited today to welcome retired NASA astronaut and Navy Captain Wendy Lawrence to the Passion Struck Podcast. Welcome, Wendy. Thank you, John. Great to be here with you. It's great to see you again. <laughs> Are you going to explain why? <laughs> I'll explain why. So for the, the viewer or listener, Wendy and I have known each other for quite a long time, going back to, it must have been my sophomore year at the Naval Academy, and she was my instructor. And it was the same year that she actually found out that she was accepted to become a NASA astronaut. Correct. Yep. Youngster physics. And not only did I get to enjoy that with you, you were also uh, the instructor who took me to Pensacola, where we got to spend a few weeks doing uh, flight training. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that was an interesting time Yeah, when, sadly, the Navy didn't have enough money to let you all actually fly a lot. So we had to find some other ways to introduce you to naval aviation at Pensacola. So hopefully that ended up being a worthwhile week. It, it was a worthwhile week. Uh, and I'll tell you, the highlight for me is I like being, I think they were T-34s, but for me, I really enjoyed being in the helicopter because it had a few different added elements of challenge that an aircraft itself does not have, yep, which I know exactly. you're you're aware of. <laughs> yep, exactly why I ended up in helicopters. I thought maybe a good starting point, if the listeners aren't familiar with your story, because you've got a great one, you didn't originally have the intention of going to the Naval Academy because when you started in high school, there weren't females at that time at the academy. That's exactly right. It wasn't an option. Women weren't attending service academies. Even though I grew up in a Navy family, my mom's dad went to the Naval Academy, graduated in the class of 1930. My dad went there, graduated in the class of 1951. Following the footsteps of them wasn't an option for me until my senior year of high school. Well, and that's because just in class of 1980 would have been the first class that had females in it. So 
I know when we have talked in the past, you, like many of your generation, got to watch uh, Neil Armstrong land on the moon. That became for you the beginning of a dream. But as you were gearing up through high school, what was going to be your plan before the Naval Academy became the option that it did? Yeah, you're like a lot of kids in high school. You're trying to sort through this. You know, what is it that I really want to do? Um, and it's not an easy decision. And unfortunately, back when I was in high school, you know, we didn't have a lot of hands-on options to explore career opportunities. You could go to your counselor and she or he would hand you books of colleges and you could look through the brochures and get a feel. But you know, it really wasn't a, a rigorous or robust way to kind of decide what your, the rest of your life was going to look like. Again, growing up in the Navy family, man, I had an opportunity to live near oceans because a lot of the naval bases, yes, are right there on the waterfront. So I always had an interest in the ocean, oceanography. And before the Naval Academy became an option, that was probably my primary interest. I thought, okay, I've always enjoyed going down to the ocean. I've always enjoyed the trips to the tide pools that I took throughout my school years. I have a fascination with sea life. So I'll look for colleges that have a strong oceanography program. And so I was looking at college. William & Mary had a good program. University of Miami had a good program. But beyond that, I didn't really have strong interests. I had had an opportunity to fly with a friend of my dad, and, and that was interest to me. But you know, really, I think at that point in time, early high school, oceanography was the primary interest. Hey, and I know you also had the special privilege that you knew through your father, many of the first astronauts yes, uh, yes. and their families. Yeah, so, my dad was Alan Shepard's wingman. Uh, right after my dad got his wings, he got sent to a squadron out at Moffett Naval Air Station. And at that point in time, Alan Shepard was a lieutenant commander. My dad was you know, a newly minted naval aviator, so he was paired with Alan Shepard. Uh, when my dad was at test pilot school, this was a little bit before I was born, John Glenn lived down the street. So my older brother and sister played with the Glenn kids. So yes, um, the first several groups of astronauts had family friends. And that really, I think, heightened the interest in the space program in our household. So I recently was doing an interview with Kayla Barron, who was one of the latest groups of astronauts who were selected. And I couldn't believe how many applicants there are today. I think there were 15,000. And I, to put this in a different perspective, the odds of becoming an astronaut are less than the odds of making four-star in the Marine Corps, which to me is the hardest one probably to make four-star in. So it's less than a percentage point of all the applicants. So I know if a person's listening, and, and I asked Kayla the same question, you and Kayla came from different points. You kind of lived most of your life with the dream of wanting to become an astronaut. And for her, it happened a little bit later. For someone who might be listening, whether they might be in high school, younger than that, or in, or in college or outside of college, what would be some of the advice that you would give someone who has a hope or dream of becoming an astronaut? Well, I would start off by saying, give yourself the opportunity to pursue the dream because you're never going to know how it will work out for you unless you take those very first steps. And yes, those very first steps may be uncomfortable. They may be a little scary. You may not feel like they're going well, but until you try and make some adjustments along the way if necessary, you never really know how far down that path you're going to get. And I think too many people just 
they start to think about what it is that they want to do and they lay out the initial steps they think they need to take and then they get overwhelmed and that means they get paralyzed. You know, just lay out a series of steps, focus on the next step, evaluate how well that's going, ask for help if you need it, get some feedback, find some mentors, and then keep moving forward in the general direction of where you think you need to head to make that dream come true. But you've got to take the first step. Otherwise, you're going nowhere. Yeah. And after you take that first step, I call it action stacking because the more actions you take, you start building upon each one. And before you know it, uh, you have moved so far and what will looking back seem like the blink of an eye to that starting point. But you're right. If you don't make that choice and then do something about it, uh, you're you're never going to have any success pursuing it. And very likely you're going to get down the road and you're going to have regret. And regret can be a very, very powerful emotion. So that's the other thing I say to kids is you don't want to get 10, 15 years down the road and look back at that moment and regret your decision because you will continue to regret that decision throughout most of your life. Yeah. And I think we're in a growing society now where we like instant gratification. We, We like, I call it living in this box that we don't like to climb out of because it's comfortable to us when we fail. When we're introduced to setbacks, uh, we tend to not want to overcome them or don't challenge ourselves to do it. And I really believe that you kind of have to put yourself in almost a continual state of discomfort if you're going to grow. And I wanted to understand if, if that's something you agree with. I do. And I think uh, Peggy Whitson, another retired NASA astronaut who hope has more time in space than any other NASA astronaut puts it well. And you know, she's the she will stand in front of a group of kids and say, you have to step outside of your comfort zone. You just have to push yourself to do that. If you're gonna have success, if you're gonna make progress, you can't just continue to sit in a bubble where everything's easy and comfortable. You've got to be willing to push yourself, even if it doesn't feel comfortable to you. So yes. I agree wholeheartedly with Peggy. You have to be willing to take those steps that will eventually put you outside of your comfort zone. And I think you're going to be surprised that you have the ability to work well in that area. But again, you're not going to know until you take those very first steps and you give it a shot. Yeah, such true advice, regardless if you want to be an astronaut, the CEO of a, of a startup or a doctor or whatever it may be, um, you're going to run into obstacles. And to me, it's getting through those that create so much strength and self-confidence in the person that you can become. Yes. Um, yeah. So I know when you went through the Naval Academy, it had to be challenging for you. Not only were you the second class of females going through, more importantly, your dad at the time was the superintendent, which if you're a civilian listening to this, that's kind of the president of the university. And that had, uh, I think, in some ways worked for you, but in many more ways worked against you based on my experience being there with uh, classmates who had fathers who were admirals um, or generals. So how did you get through that challenge? Well, yes. Uh, Let's just say that everybody ends up knowing who you are (laughs) and everybody's just waiting and watching and they're wondering if uh, you're going to follow the rules or you're going to take advantage of the situation and say, hey, my dad's the soup. I'm going to go do whatever I want to. I took the approach that 
I was just going to keep my head down. I wasn't going to do things that drew attention to myself. I was just going to day in, day out, strive to be a good midshipman academically, professionally. And yeah, okay, every so often I did kind of bend the rules. And technically, you know, I may not have had yard liberty that day, but if I'm running by my dad's house after crew practice and I just want to stop in and say hi and pet our dogs, then yeah, I did that every so often. But for the most part, I just tried to divorce myself from the fact that my dad's over at Buchanan House. I live in Bancroft Hall. So this is where, this is the area in which my life predominantly revolves around that and, and the academic buildings. And so I'm just going to focus day in and day out, like I said, on being a good midshipman. And then, yeah, there's some fun family stories to tell. I There was definitely an education process where I had to remind my dad that you're the superintendent and you just can't pick up the phone and call my company area and ask to talk to me because the poor fourth class midshipman who answers the phone <laughs> and hears that the soup's on the other end of the line, that's a very stressful situation for them. So it was kind of fun. The first few months, I was the one who was kind of educating my dad about, all right, we're going to have to establish some boundaries here. <laughs> and I'm going to pretty much call the shots because I'm the one who's a little bit at the disadvantage being the midshipman. You're the top dog and I'm way down here at the bottom of the pile. So let me tell you how this is going to work for us. Well, did you have any thought in your mind that at that point in time, not only were you going to become an astronaut, but you were going to become what I think is the first female distinguished graduate of the Naval Academy. Uh, what an incredible honor. Well, you know, back then there was no such award. That's a, it didn't come about. And I think until the early 2000s that the Alumni Association decided to model a program that was uh, already in place at West Point you know, to select distinguished graduates to be uh, recognized in this way. You know, honestly, as a midshipman, yes, it was still very much my dream to become an astronaut. Uh, with the beginning of the shuttle program, with NASA selecting women in the first class of shuttle astronauts, I think the dream took on a little bit better definition. I think I was a little bit more hopeful that, hey, there are finally people who look like me doing this. So maybe this really is going to be a realistic option. Maybe this is really something I can accomplish. But again, I was just trying to stay focused on life as a midshipman do well academically. I knew I had to do well academically because there were so few women at the academy and so few women out in the Navy. Opportunities to become a pilot were very limited for women. So I knew that I had to be at the top of my class academically if I was going to be able to select a pilot slot that was designated for women. Yes. And for those who have never been in a helicopter and especially a helicopter at sea, it has been some of the most harrowing moments of my career, especially when you're landing in the middle of a storm and the ship below you is bouncing up and down. What was, if you think about it, one of the most harrowing experiences um, when you were on deployment that you had in a helicopter? I will start off by saying the most terrifying thing I've ever done in my life is not ride a rocket to space. It's land a helicopter on the back of a ship at night when it was so dark, you really couldn't make out a visible horizon. And consider when I was flying the helicopters. This was all pre-night vision goggles. So all we had were the lights that were on around the landing deck area. And we had a line of lights that were called our, our lineup lines, you know, helping us to line up so that we could end up over the majority of the flight deck, the widest part of the flight deck. So hands down, the most terrifying thing I've ever done is, is land a helicopter at night. 
And then doing a couple of North Atlantic cruises where the sea state really was quite challenging. I mean, we called our landings nothing more than a controlled crash. We would watch the ship pitch and roll beneath us, and then we we waited until it somewhat came to a level position, and we literally lowered what was called the collective to slam down on the deck, and we hoped the flight deck crew could get out to us quickly enough to chalk and chain us that we wouldn't bounce around and start sliding around um, the flight deck. But there have been a few times, a few takeoffs in those sea states where you started to take off and you literally started to slide sideways along the deck and you realized, I got to get up in the air much, much more quickly. Um, so yeah, it's flying a helicopter on and off a ship, very challenging, but also very rewarding. I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed life as a helicopter pilot. I thought one of my most interesting experiences when we were underway and we did what's called an underway replenishment. And if you're not familiar with that, let's say you're on a destroyer, a transport ship comes that has cargo and other things to sustain the destroyer cruiser, whatever it might be. And at the time, I remember it being primarily CH-46s would come up. They grab the material and then bring it over on the ship. And I used to be in awe of these these pilots because of the skill that they had uh, to do that job, especially as you're saying, when we were all pitching. So it's an interesting maneuver and something uh, the U.S. Navy does extremely well. And and Um, very, very fun flying, pretty much seat of the pants flying. So yeah, I really enjoyed, I got to fly the H-46 and it's a very responsive helicopter with the tandem rotors on top and it allowed you to do a wide range of maneuvers. So vert rep was really, really quite fun. Well, with that harrowing experience behind you, I've always wanted to ask an astronaut, and I have never asked this question, but what is going through your mind the first time you run the space shuttle and you're on the launch pad and you're 10, 15 seconds to go? I mean, what is it excitement that's going through your mind? Is it fear? What was that sensation like? For me, never fear, because uh, I've been waiting uh, way too long uh, for an opportunity to finally ride the rocket. Uh, excitement, definitely listening to the final uh, chatter, looking at all the systems on board, hoping that everything was going to work. And then when the engines light off, you think, oh, my gosh, this isn't anything like the simulator or the centrifuge. I mean, who just sat down on my chest? The power, it, to this day, I can't capture in words to adequately describe the sense of power and acceleration you feel. You know, for me, it was the shuttle. It was 6.5 million pounds of thrust. Big number feels even bigger. It was incredible. Again, an incredible sense of power and acceleration. And you felt like you were in the world's biggest catapult. You know the moment you leave the launch pad is like a kick in the chest. And then that pressure on the chest just continues to build. And I do remember thinking to myself on my first like, oh my gosh, an elephant just sat down on me and I can't even breathe. It is so heavy. And then you just try and enjoy the ride. I mean, you've got the very professional side of you that's continually monitoring all the systems on board. But then there's also this little kid side of you that goes, oh my gosh, this is fantastic. I mean, roller coasters, eh, you have nothing to this. And you just try and soak everything in and in thoroughly enjoy the moment that you're living in. Yeah, something I wish I could experience someday. And, you know, maybe with the new programs that are coming out, maybe it will be a possibility in the future. They're doing low Earth orbit. You obviously went much farther than that. You know, with that as a backdrop, I did wanted to ask, if you were an astronaut, again, 
and you were just starting your career, what would be your ideal mission? Well, I'm a little biased because the dream started with watching two men walk on the moon. So I'd love to eventually end up on the moon one day. But if you're in the astronaut office right now, I think you want to set your sights on doing a mission on board the International Space Station because that's very important experience. One, working with your crewmates, in particular crewmates from other countries, getting that international experience. But then also getting a long period of time in space, I think is important. And doing it initially in close coordination with mission control. Future missions for NASA are going to take astronauts farther and farther away from the planet. Okay, yes, when you're on the moon, you still have good communications with mission control, but the crew that goes to Mars is going to be in a very different operational environment. You watch movies and people just assume the crew will be able to solve problems with mission control. That's not going to be the case on Mars. That is going to be a crew that's pretty much on their own and You'll have a a huge delay in getting a response from mission control. So any situation in which you think you have to take immediate action, you and your crewmates have to develop that plan. So getting experience, operational experience, again, key in my opinion, starting off on the International Space Station to get that experience, very good step. If you're able to then be part of a crew that goes uh, to the moon under the Artemis program, another very important step to take. But I don't think anybody on the, who gets to go to Mars for the first time is going to be an astronaut who hasn't flown before. So I'd say get in the astronaut office, develop your professional reputation, study hard, learn the systems of your spacecraft really well, hone your skills, flying the robotic arm and doing a spacewalk, and then look for the first flight opportunity you can get. And I understand once you're selected, it takes several years to go through training. What is some of the training as an astronaut you went through? Because I understand there's swimming pool training, there's lots of different components. Can you talk about that? And what, and is, has it changed since you went through the program? Well, it has changed because the spacecraft has changed. But for me, it was was like, wow, this is just like being in flight training uh, in Pensacola under the Navy. First and foremost, you've got to learn the platform that you're going to fly on. So for me, it was the space, space shuttle. And then pretty much immediately you start learning each and every system of the space shuttle. So you've got to get your basic systems knowledge. Then you have to practice how to interact with that system. So we had procedural trainers, not unlike what I did at Pensacola for the T-34 aircraft. NASA called them single systems trainers. So it gave you an opportunity to practice procedures to operate it, and then to go through your emergency procedures to see the signatures for a particular failure. By that, I mean, what am I going to see on my display screens that helps me understand what I'm seeing is this particular failure, and therefore I need to go to this particular emergency procedure. And so it's pretty much a very deliberate step-by-step process to build your knowledge. And eventually you end up in the full-up simulator, which by that I mean the one that has all the systems integrated into it. But the fun part is there are other things that you get to learn along the way. Uh, We were still learning uh, geography, and I think the astronaut candidates still get to do that initially in their training flow. Now for current groups of astronaut candidates, right off the bat, they're going to learn how to fly the space station robotic arm. They're going to learn how to do spacewalks. There may be some language training in there as well, maybe Russian language training. But there are a whole host of things that they're going to learn and still uh, common to my experience and current experience for astronaut candidates is learning how to fly in the T-34 because that's 
pretty fast jet. It puts you in a situation where you have to work with one other person, and it forces you to begin to process information more quickly. The spacecraft you're going to fly on when you rocket off the planet and then when you're up in space, it's a very fast-paced environment, particularly when you're riding the rocket to space. You've got to be able to very quickly assess a situation. I mean, in a matter of seconds, you've got to be able to very clearly and concisely communicate that to the rest of your crew and then decide what to do. So the T-38 was a good intermediate step to get you in an environment where you're flying around just below Mach 1 and you've got to quickly diagnose something, again, communicate it to your crewmate, jointly decide on your uh, next course of action and then take it. And if I remember from our past discussion, one of the unique things about your career was that you were on a space shuttle launch that followed. Get ready to supercharge your hiring experience with Indeed, our fantastic partner. We at PassionStruck are all about seeking smarter, more efficient ways to do things. And Indeed perfectly aligns with this philosophy when it comes to hiring. It's more than just a job site. It's a comprehensive platform that revolutionizes the way you find the perfect candidates. With its powerful matching engine and over 350 million global monthly visitors, Indeed streamlines the hiring process, bringing top talent straight to you. No more sifting through endless unqualified resumes. Indeed does the heavy lifting just for you. And what I love about Indeed is its ability to centralize all your hiring activities. From scheduling interviews and screening applicants to messaging candidates, it's all in one place. During my career, I've hired thousands of employees, and I only wish I had Indeed's efficiency and speed back then. And here's a fact that absolutely blows my mind. 93% of employers, according to a recent survey, say Indeed delivers the best quality matches over other job sites. That's quality and speed hand in hand. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Just go to Indeed.com slash passionstruck right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I know all those discount codes are difficult to remember, so we put them all at passionstruck.com slash deals. Now, back to passionstruck. A very unfortunate disaster. And so... I can't imagine after that has transpired being in that next group, but you told me following that mishap that uh, NASA completely changed the way that they were interacting with you and kind of the way that you were, you and your other crew members were requesting to interact with NASA. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? And has that philosophy persisted since that time? So yes, my last flight STS-114 was the first return to flight mission following uh, the loss of the Columbia orbiter and the STS-107 crew on board. So definitely a very high profile mission test flight in that there were recommendations provided by the accident investigation board where during our mission, we had to show that we, NASA, had come up with ways to meet those recommendations. So doing an on-orbit inspection, being able to look at the entire outside of the orbiter as we went around the planet being able to look for damage to the RCC panels, protective panels on the front of the wings and the tiles in the thermal protection system, having some solutions for repairing minor damage. Um, so those were things that we did during the mission. And I don't want to give the, uh, the impression that NASA was in a situation where they never listened to the crew. 
it just so happened that after the accident, the, the two individuals who became program manager for the shuttle program and the deputy program manager, they were very attentive to the crew's concerns, meaning SDS-114 crew. They wanted to have a good flow of communication, not just with the crew, but for the engineers that were in the program as well. And so they pretty much had an open office policy. And I think on a monthly basis, our crew went over to talk with them. Um, In this case, they'd close the door and say, tell us how you guys are feeling about what we're doing. The door's closed, so I want you to be frank. I want you to be honest. I don't want you to hold anything back. You know, they recognize that part of the problem that contributed to the 107 accident was there was not a great flow of communication up to the highest levels. Information got compressed, consolidated, and there was also an environment in which some people were very reluctant to speak out. And so these two individuals had the mindset that we're going to change that. We want people to feel comfortable bringing us unpleasant news, bad news. We don't want them to feel like they're going to get in trouble because they have disappointing news to share with us. So I compliment those two individuals for doing that. I think there's still a desire on NASA's part to maintain that. But it's challenging, and I haven't been back at a NASA center for a while. Most people have still been working remotely, so it's it's hard to um, comment on whether or not that openness still persists. But I know it's a goal of many, many managers is to make sure they create an environment in which employees feel comfortable bringing them bad news. And I wonder how that changes now that the mission has shifted from a NASA or Russian delivery vehicle to a commercial vehicle, um, and how much interaction there still is between the astronauts and those commercial contractors. I, I'm assuming there's a ton. Uh, I don't think it's as much as uh, some crew members would like to have. I think it depends on who you fly with, but you know they're a commercial entity. They have proprietary information. My understanding is astronauts have to sign non-disclosures agreement. I think that's the case. So they're restricted on what they can talk about. Again, I can't directly comment to it because I haven't been uh, able to be in a situation where I can spend several days in the astronaut office in a row and observe it. But I think it is a different relationship, again, because no longer does NASA own the spacecraft. case of Cargo Dragon and Crew Dragon built by SpaceX. SpaceX owns that spacecraft. SpaceX operates that spacecraft. They're responsible for day-to-day operation of the vehicle. NASA is still responsible for the overall execution of the mission. So how much information gets shared? Not going to be the same as when you directly own the spacecraft and you are the ones responsible for operating it on a basis. But if it affects the ability to carry out the mission, then that information has to get conveyed to NASA. So it is a different environment. It definitely is a different environment. Did you know that Forbes magazine recently cited that 70% of individuals who do personal development, masterminds, and one-on-one coaching benefited from better work performance, increased communication skills, and overall better relationships. And we at PassionStruck are obsessed with self-development coaching, and mentorship. That is why we've created a free resource to help you unlock your hidden potential. Because people doing great things in business and life are just like you, only they've had a coach along the way. 
and we've got that covered too. Let us show you the systems and frameworks that we teach growth-minded individuals to help them step into their sharp edges, execute on their passion journeys, and get predictable results time and time again. Go to passionstruck.com coaching right now and let's get igniting. You told me a very interesting story that at that up until that point, I didn't really uh, realize is that when NASA made the decision to shut down um, the shuttle program and to turn this over to commercial industry, the approach that Boeing took and the approach that SpaceX took were, were very different from the onset. And to me, it was quite eye-opening because a much larger chunk of the budget went to Boeing than it did to SpaceX. Yet SpaceX, um, you could rightfully say, has been the faster one to achieve many of the milestones. Can you talk about what that difference was and kind of the gamble that space, SpaceX took at the beginning? So just to make sure his history is accurately captured here, the directive came from President Bush in 2004. Uh, the decision was made that once the U.S. portion of the space station was built, the space shuttle would be retired. Shuttles were the way to get the main modules up there. And at that point in time, Note 2 was going to be the last component provided by NASA. So at that point, shuttles would stop. So an emphasis was put in place to transition from a shuttle providing support to allowing some commercial companies to provide support to NASA in terms of delivering cargo and eventually crew to the space station. And so it was really the initial NASA employees working in the commercial office, commercial programs office, let's just call it that, who had the foresight to say, let's lay out the contract so that if a company wants to eventually be in a position to carry crew members to space, they can do it through this initial contract. And so there are several parts to this contract. Part D was the part that included a provision to eventually carry astronauts to the International Space Station. So SpaceX's approach was we want to be able to participate in all steps of the contract. So let's design our capsule in a way that initially can be used to carry cargo. And then without a significant amount of modification, we can design that capsule to also carry crew members and be rated to carry crew members. I think I can't remember if Boeing initially bid on the cargo contract and didn't win. I'd have to go back and do some research to refresh my memory. But Boeing waited uh, for a longer period of time to then bid on the commercial crew contract. When that came in place, I think it was close to 2010. So at that point, SpaceX had already had the opportunity to be working for several years on the basic design of the capsule that I'm in eventually they modified to become their crew version of the capsule. So that, yes, it gave SpaceX a head start. It was really, I think, a very smart decision on SpaceX part to get in there immediately, start working with NASA, understand the way that they're going to have to work with NASA, understand the way NASA levied requirements and then enforced compliance with those requirements get a sense of how NASA evaluated system design in terms of safety. So, yeah, I do think it gave uh, SpaceX a head start over Boeing. And do you think as we start approaching the moon and then Mars, um, that this is going to be a multinational group that 
comes together, or do you think this is going to be nationalized where there'll be a U.S. program with some international components, a China program, maybe another country's program, each individually trying to do it? How, how do you see that future, that future working? Right now, the Wolf Amendment prohibits NASA from working with China. So until that changes, there won't be an opportunity for the two countries to have any significant participation together. So it's a long way of saying I think China will continue to go off and build their space program. You see NASA go back to the moon under the Artemis program and eventually onto Mars. You're going to see it modeled pretty much with what you see with the International Space Station, where you could say NASA is kind of the lead integrator. There are other space agencies participating, but NASA takes the lead in integrating the entire program. So it's been a very successful approach with the International Space Station, and it's already the approach that you're seeing with the Artemis program, with other space agencies participating in it, but NASA really is the prime integrator. Uh, Well, as I was preparing for Kayla's interview, I was watching a number of interviews that the head of astronaut selection was doing. And coming out of that, I was pretty surprised that many of the selection criteria that they're looking for future astronauts has expanded from when you were going through the program. They're looking for, obviously, you need to have a STEM background. You have to have an advanced degree, but they're looking for healthcare professionals, people who have advanced science uh, degrees. I know in the case of Kayla, I think one of the things that attracted them to her is her her graduate degrees were in advanced nuclear power and how to do it in a green way. And as I think about the future of space, you know, some of the probes we have up there already have some radioactive isotopes. So I'm thinking there's probably a good connection that we're going to need nuclear power to get to power things to and from Mars and, and do it in an effective way. So it's interesting that the skill sets are drastically changing. I wouldn't say the fundamental uh, floor is, but can you maybe give some more color to that? I, I was getting mine basically just from listening to a few interviews. Well, I think when you compare it to the first group of astronauts selected, yes, things are, are very different. <laughs> you know, Pretty much the requirement for the first groups were bachelor's degree, test pilot, below a certain height, above a certain height. In the shuttle program, though, I think is when things really, really change because finally there was an emphasis on selecting non-pilot astronauts. And so the emphasis was put on educational background and STEM fields. If you were applying and you were not in the military, it was pretty well understood amongst the civilian applicants that to be competitive, you really needed to have a PhD. So again, a pretty extensive educational background and, and then work experience, relevant experience showing that you can take what you've learned in the classroom and apply it outside of that setting to the problems that are particular to whatever discipline you've gotten your degree in. So that emphasis to me still remains the same. Because there have been so many applicants in the past, the, I think the decision to, and, and the reality was. I can't remember anybody who got selected with just a bachelor's degree when I was at NASA. Pretty much even the military folks had at least a master's. So that's just an acknowledgement of the way the selection process has worked out over the many past years. So NASA has now finally made that official. You have to have a master's. But I think there also is an increasing emphasis on what sort of activities do you engage in outside of work? 
because it's important for us to see that you are comfortable in an environment that has a degree of risk, that you have some ability to assess that risk, and then put plans in place that help to control that risk, to minimize the chance that it will occur. Because all of those skills are very relevant to your life as an astronaut. They're critically important to when you're carrying out a mission as well. You have to have that ability to assess the situation and determine whether or not things are on track or maybe they're going off track and there's a risk of a particular problem occurring. Yes. And I remember in my interview when I was talking to uh, someone you also know, uh, Chris Cassidy, I, I think you were actually part of the selection process that brought him into NASA. Um, yep. Chris was describing to me the parallels between SEAL training and astronaut training because he said, similar to being a SEAL, he spent 18 months to two years in a workup for a one year deployment. And he said it's kind of the same thing as an astronaut. You're gearing up for a couple of years before the mission. And we were talking about one of his spacewalks where he was out with, uh, and I think it was an Italian astronaut who started to get uh, water in his mask. And Chris says, I, I have to be honest with you. I don't remember grabbing him. I don't remember opening the hatch. I don't remember putting him in. I don't, he goes, all of it was just automatic because I had trained for it thousands of times. So when it happened, similar to when you're in warfare, you just, your mind just takes over from that habit of, of practice so much. But it really brought home to me the discipline that you have to have um, to be able to do that detailed level of training and and practice because some people um, that I've worked with just don't like to do that habitual thing like like you're forced to. So it got me wondering, what do you think are some of the most important traits that make a successful astronaut? Oh, delay gratification. <laughs> uh, to your point, to Chris's point. I think NASA is a great example of this. When you look at any particular mission, there have been a group of people who've started probably year two, three years in advance planning that mission. And their job is to sit around a room and, and what if? Okay, what if this happens? How are we going to handle that situation? You know, what are what's going to be the acceptable environment for us to operate in? And what are the limits? What are the boundaries? And what happens when we cross one of those limits? How are we going to handle that situation? So some people will say, oh, NASA makes it look easy with you know, the way they carry out these missions, only because there's been a very dedicated group of people who day in and day out came to work, not really exciting or thrilling work because they're sitting at a table, but incredibly important work. It is the foundation of every mission, that planning effort. And so you have to be the sort of person who can endure that. Yeah, because you know that mission's going to be two, three years down the road. So that's that delayed gratification part. You're not going to get to see the results of your hard work until a pretty long period of time away. And then you also have to be very focused and you have to be very disciplined because this is a deliberate process that you have to go through every time to make the mission successful. And if you're a person who just can't be in that sort of deliberate environment where you've got to have a lot of action each and every day, then I'm not sure that life as an astronaut is really suited for you because that fun part, that action every day doesn't happen very often. You spend most of your time supporting the program via a ground-based job, what's called a technical assignment. 
you have a very long training flow that sometimes could be, you know, two to three times longer than the period of time you get to spend in space. Yeah, and looking back, Wendy, do you have a memory? I don't want to call it the coolest thing that you ever did when you were up there, but was there something that just completely stunned you or when you think back upon it is a favorite memory of yours? Yeah, it's really hard to single out one thing because, again, you spend so much time training and so little, at least in the shuttle program, so little time up in space. So uh, you tend to savor every moment, being able to ride the rocket, being able to float around, being able to look out the window back at your home planet. But more importantly, finally being able to do what you've been training to do, that is very rewarding. And again, when you've been training a year, 18 months, practicing the same thing day in and day out, when you finally get to do it during the mission and it goes well, that um, is a very fun moment. It's one that you tend to savor and again, remember for a very long period of time. Okay. And if you were asked to do the commencement speech at the Naval Academy, what topic would you pick? And why? Oh, well, I've given a four stall lecture. <laughs> I know. I was going to ask my normal question. <laughs> and um, I know you already gave one. <laughs> and actually, uh, Admiral Rent talk, asked me in particular to talk about international cooperation because he was really putting an emphasis on midshipmen going to other countries and learning how to work with them. So I talked about my experience in Russia. You know, there are a lot of things. <laughs> that are good to talk to the mids about. But I'd say one thing in particular that I learned as a young naval officer, and I'll just summarize it this way, always seek to be part of the solution. And I have to credit the first few commanding officers I had with showing me the importance of this and not only showing me, but helping me develop this ability as a a young officer. I had one commanding officer in particular who made it clear. Like, it's great for you to figure out that there's a particular issue, but it is not acceptable for you to just come to my office and point it out to me. I'm a very busy person. I need you to come to my office also with one or more ways that we can deal with this issue. That's what's expected of you. When I was teaching leadership, I also taught physics as well, second-class leadership. I made this point regularly to the midshipmen because, you know, life is a mid. You tend to complain a lot. Junior officers as well. It's easy to find issue with a lot of what's going on around you. But I used to say to those mids, look, I'm going to say this again and again and again until you all grasp this because this is something I learned as a JO. It is not acceptable to criticize what's going on over in Bancroft Hall or throughout the rest of the academy. You don't earn the right to criticize this issue until you are willing to spend some time to come up with a way to fix it. And I remember the first couple of times I said that to them, they were kind of like, what? And then slowly it dawned on them. You're right. It's not acceptable for us to sit here and criticize. That's easy. What's hard and what our senior officers are grappling with because it's hard is an effective way to solve this problem. So I've kind of condensed it down to this, be part of the solution, figure out how to be part of the solution. And is there a leadership style that you think serves a leader more than others? What's your Uh, thoughts on that? I think you have to know the people that you're leading. And I think you have to have the ability to assess the situation to see what's going to be more effective. I think if you're going to be a good leader, you can't just stick with one style. You have to be able to adapt to the, the situation you're in. You know, sometimes 
you need to be that supportive listening ear and you go up and put your arm around somebody and, and say, Hey, I'm here for you. I, I know you're struggling right now. Let's just go off and talk. Sometimes you got to may, maybe be out of character and come in and just drop the bombshell. I had to do that a couple of times as a midshipman. I was not a yeller and screamer, but there were a couple of times where I knew I had to get the attention of the people that I was responsible for. So I came in and then very uncharacteristically yelled at them and I got their attention. And then we had a conversation. I did that as a JO one time where I had to get the attention of my detachment because they were getting a little bit complacent. So along with the chief, we came in in a very dramatic fashion and we got everybody's attention. So I think if you're going to be an effective leader. You have to understand that particular situations are going to require you to respond in a different way. So you can't just do the same thing day in and day out. Oh, I think that's very true. One thing that I often reflect on is I have a, a 23-year-old who graduated college a couple of years ago, and I have a high school student, and I often try to self-reflect myself when I was their age, especially my son, what advice I would give them. If you were going to give yourself advice from when you were in your early to mid-20s, would you change anything? Or is there something that you would advise yourself to do that you didn't? Oh, that's a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> For me too, Wendy. <laughs> yeah, I think um, I think it would have been good at a younger age to realize it's okay to continue to ask for help, ask for advice. I think particularly in today's society, it's too easy for people to slip into the mindset of, if I'm not able to do it all on my own, then, well, I'm just not worth anything because that's what America expects of me. I've got to pull myself up by my bootstraps. And that's just such a false narrative. And I wish somebody had said that to me right after graduation. Like, look, you're a junior officer. Nobody expects you to know everything and to do everything right. Be more vulnerable and be willing to go up to the your department head, you know, even if you're not a division officer at this point because you're just a brand new ensign, go to the more senior lieutenants, ask them for advice. Pick their brain. You know, what experiences did you go through that I'll probably go through? How did you handle that situation? I wish I'd had an opportunity or made the opportunity to have more of those conversations when I was a young officer. Yes, I couldn't agree with you more. I think sometimes it's difficult to want to ask for help. It's difficult because many times you're having to make yourself become vulnerable because you're admitting you might not know how to do something as well as someone else, or you're admitting a deficiency, but it makes you so much stronger in the way that that other person looks at you, the fact that you're willing to ask for help, but then you got to apply it. Because the person knows at your core, you want to get better. So you're here because you want to better understand the responsibilities of your job. You want to acquire those skills and the knowledge that allow you to do your job more effectively. But you're basically asking these questions because you care. You care about doing a good job. Yeah, I remember it's been many years ago. I took over a department uh, when I joined Lowe's Home Improvement. And when I took over this department, they had the lowest employee engagement scores in the entire company. And the company at that time had 300,000 employees. And as I got to know them, I started to ask more and more questions. What would you do differently? How would you address this situation? What are your ideas on what we need to fix? And one of the most fundamental things that feedback that came back to me was I was the first leader who would ever ask them that question. 
and had ever empowered them to help come up with the solution. So I think yeah. what you were saying earlier is is so important if you're a leader is to is to seek that complete full cycle of communication because it's going to make you a more authentic leader. You're mm-hmm. going to hear firsthand from people who, you know, in this case, many of them had been living it for a decade. And I think sometimes the immediate thing we want to do is jump into a situation without completely understanding the path that got them to where they are, because sometimes unraveling it is much more complex than meets the eyes. Um, Well, I think, unfortunately, in American society, um, action is described as doing being physical, being up and running about and actively engaging people in conversation. But action is also sitting there initially and trying to get your arms around what's going on. Action, research is action. You are taking steps to define the boundaries of the issue that you have to deal with. You're trying to understand just how complex it is. Afghan's a great situation. Everybody wants to simplify it. Incredibly complex problem. And you can't just rush in and take a series of steps. You're likely going to make it worse. So I think in America in particular, we have to understand. I go back to the comments I made about NASA. Sitting at a table, talking with people, trying to get your arms around the issue, you are taking action. It's just not as visible as other steps that you can take. But nevertheless, it is still action. You are still working to address the issue. You're just being more thoughtful and deliberate about it, which very likely means ultimately you're going to be much more successful in finding a way to resolve the problem. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it any better myself. Well, I had one last question for you, and that is I have read a lot about what the future off earth exploration and other things may be Jeff Bezos talking about uh, how he would like to do manufacturing in space in the future. And you could actually see delivery, uh, pinpoint delivery happening from there. Uh, people doing manufacturing and other things up on the moon. Do you think those are real possibilities? And if so, what kind of time horizon are we looking at? Is this decades and decades away or is it? closer than that? I think it depends on what particular type of manufacturing you might be talking about. For the commercial companies, it all boils down to whether or not there's going to be an economy. Can you make money? So NASA has taken the initial steps to provide that economy for them by saying, all right, companies, we are going to allow you to provide services to NASA. You can deliver cargo to the International Space Station. You can deliver crew Eventually, they may be delivering cargo to the moon. So NASA is trying to help create that space-based economy, but it's really going to boil down to manufacturing uh, fiber optic cables in space. Can you do it in a way that's going to make money? To me, that's the big unknown. So it's really hard to predict just how fast all of this may play out. We are proving on board the International Space Station that, yes, the laws of physics do allow you, even in the absence of the pull of gravity, to manufacture a handful of items. But can you do it affordably? And that's really going to be the challenge for these companies. How all that works out, I mean, it's hard to predict. I don't have a background in business, but I think everybody agrees in this. Virgin Galactic, Blue Origin, can you be successful at flying people into, on suborbital flights? All depends on you know five ten years down the road. Do you still have people who are willing to pay the price of the ticket 
So that's their challenge. Can you make it affordable? Can you make money off of it? And one follow-up to that, how do you think if us and China are running two different programs that the first person or first country that gets to Mars, do you think one country could have influence over the other by arriving first where one claims jurisdiction for it? Or do you think it's far less complex than that? Yeah, I would say anything when you're dealing with another country is going to become complex. I would like to think that the treaties that are in place, the treaty about outer space would govern some behavior. Uh, Landing, I mean, let's not make this trivial. We know how to land something about the size of a car on Mars. We've been able to do that successfully. One of the most challenging things any nation is going to have to figure out, any program bound for Mars is going to have to figure out, is how to do that entry, descent, and landing activity with much larger amounts of mass. That's not trivial. So I would like to think that eventually anybody has the ability to land on Mars is not going to be in direct competition with one another because they realize just how profoundly hard it is to do that and that there would be a greater sense of cooperation. But the world could change a lot between now and when that actually happens. So I think we'll just have to wait and see. Yes. Well, Wendy, thank you so much uh, for joining the podcast today. Such a delight to get to talk to you again. Likewise. Thanks for the opportunity, John. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and our desire to provide you with entertaining content that allows you to learn and relate. And most importantly, take these lessons on so that you too can dream the dream as Wendy talked about today. If there's a guest or a message that you would like to hear, please DM me on Instagram at John R. Miles. And if you haven't checked it out yet, please subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is also John R. Miles. And I mentioned a couple other episodes today. One was with former chief astronaut and Navy SEAL Chris Cassidy, where we discussed the importance of being in the moment. I also discussed the interview I did with astronaut Kayla Barron, who is going up on the ISS in October. We also have some other great episodes coming up, including one with Navy SEAL Commander Mark Devine, NASCAR racer Jesse Ouija, creative Michelle Royal, and Michelle Royal will talk about how she took her creativity and is now helping so many companies create strategic creativity in their organizations as well. So thankful for all of you tuning in week in and week out. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us. The purpose of our show is to make passion go viral. And we do that by sharing with you the knowledge and skills that you need to unlock your hidden potential. If you want to hear more, please subscribe to the Passion Struck Podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts at. And if you absolutely love this episode, we'd appreciate a five-star rating on iTunes and you sharing it with three of your most growth-minded friends so they can post it as well to their social accounts and help us grow our Passion Struck community. If you'd like to learn more about the show and our mission, you can go to passionstruck.com where you can sign up for our, our newsletter, look at our tools, and also download the show notes for today's episode. Additionally, you can listen to us every Tuesday and Friday for even more inspiring content. And remember, make a choice, work hard, and step into your sharp edges. Thank you again for joining us.